Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, January 31st. CNN legal analyst Ellie Honig is back with us to do a few things, describe what it will take to actually convict the Memphis police officers accused of murder and the death of Tyree Nichols, to explain some of the other charges brought against them like kidnapping and one called official oppression. Did you know that's a thing? Also to talk about the announcement yesterday by Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg that he's presenting the Donald Trump Stormy Daniels hush money case to a grand jury. That usually means a criminal charge is coming. We also have the DA in Fulton County, Georgia, Fannie Willis, stating in court that a decision is imminent on whether to charge Trump with election uh, election tampering there. You know about his phone call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger asking him to find 11,000 more votes for Trump and all of that. And we'll put all of this in the context of Ellie's new book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get away with it. Donald Trump is a prime, but certainly not the only example of that in the book. Ellie, always good to have you. Welcome back to WNYC. Brian, it's always wonderful to be with you. Are you sure this is all we have to cover? I don't, I don't think we have enough material to, to deal with here. And we have seven minutes, so we can get to it. No, we have longer than that. Yeah, let, yeah, me, yeah. No, let me begin on the news. And we may think most about the Trump January 6th and classified documents cases when we think about Trump and the law right now. But the Stormy Daniels hush money yeah. case is now going before a Manhattan grand jury. And you write about this case in detail in your book. So can you remind us of what he's being investigated for there? I do. And Brian, I got to tell you, this was a bit of a bolt out of the blue. So we have just found out in the last day or two that the Manhattan district attorney, and people should understand that is a state level prosecutor here in Manhattan, is now putting evidence in front of a grand jury about that hush money scheme. We remember in the lead up to the 2016 election, Donald Trump and and his people paid off two women, Stormy Daniels, uh, who was an adult film star, and Karen McDougal, uh, who who was an actress, to stay quiet, essentially, in, in the days leading up to the election. Now, what's surprising about this is this had already been fully considered. And this is what I, what I report in my book. The federal prosecutors right across the street in my old office, where I used to work, the Southern District of New York, which is part of the Justice Department, had grappled with this two years ago when Donald Trump left office because we probably remember that long-standing DOJ policy says you cannot indict a sitting president. So DOJ, when they were prosecuting Michael Cohen, who ended up being the only person ever prosecuted under this, they knew they could not indict Donald Trump. But what I report for my book in the first time, and I get into the real details, I really actually get inside the room at DOJ, is that the Southern District of New York, they met several times two years ago in 2021 and had this discussion. Do we charge Donald Trump for this hush money scheme? And the ultimate decision, as we know, because he's not been been charged, is no. But the reasons why they decided not to, I think, are really interesting and relevant to the news story here. Because if you're wondering, well, how strong might the Manhattan DA's evidence be? They're dealing with a different set of laws. We're talking state versus federal laws, but the same basic core of fact. And what Mm -hmm. I found so interesting is that the prosecutors at the Southern District who were in on these discussions 
uniformly agreed that they had enough evidence to indict Donald Trump. Now, some felt the evidence was sort of close to the line, but enough to indict. Others felt that it was a no brainer, but ultimately they decided not to for a sort of mixture of political and practical reasons, um, including that they believed that he had committed other crimes that would essentially supersede this crime, not, you know, not excluding January 6th. So as a result, and this is a, a great example that, that I sort of lay out in my book, you have this whole hush money scheme. The only person who's ever been prosecuted for that is Michael Cohen, whose role in this was fairly limited. He was essentially a bad man who cut some checks. He he admitted his culpability, but nobody else, not even the most powerful person, Donald Trump. Now we're learning that may change. And I should, should say, Brian, just by way of disclosure here, the current Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, is a friend of mine and a former colleague over at the Southern District of New York as well. What would the charge be and what would the evidence yeah. be? So it's interesting. So the charge under New York state law that the DA is looking at here is essentially falsification of business records. And what that means is that they took these payments that they made to Stormy Daniels and they characterized them as attorney's fees, when in fact what they were was campaign donations. That would, that would be how they could technically be construed because these were expenditures that Trump and his people were making in order to silence Stormy Daniels in connection with the election. And that, Brian, is usually where we have the, the sort of potential tension because this kind of charge has been brought before federally, including against John Edwards, who we remember was a vice presidential candidate some years ago. And the defense that John Edwards made that actually succeeded in his case was these payments did not have to do with my political fortunes, my campaign. We made these payments to spare me and my family from public humiliation. That's not a crime. But if what you're doing is making payments that actually amount to campaign contributions and you're not characterizing them as campaign contributions, then that can be a crime. You know, I thought if the Manhattan DA made Trump news, it would be about the tax fraud case that his company, the Trump Organization, and their CFO, Alan Weisselberg, were just convicted of. I want to play yeah. a minute of your friend DA Bragg on this show earlier this month on why Trump's closely held company was convicted and the CFO he worked so closely with was, but not Trump himself, yep. D.A. Bragg. And the defense argued that sort of, you know, everyone else had their head in the sand, including uh, Mr. Trump. I shouldn't say everyone else, but then Mr. Trump specifically. And in a rebuttal, you know, we said, look, the former president, this is his namesake corporation. He hired all of these people. Uh, he set it in motion. Uh, and so that to say that, you know, uh, he knew nothing, uh, was was incredible. Now that is a you know is a significant jump between that and imposing individual criminal liability. I mean, here Mr. Weisselberg was you know, like I said, a luxury car, housing, um, tuition for you know a private school for his grandson, uh, and so uh, the 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 evidence. You know, we make all of our decisions also based on the the evidence. The evidence as Mr. Weisselberg you know, warranted the charge. Uh, and the, the jury uh, and the judge you know, agreed. D.A. Bragg on this show. So, Elliot, sounds like he's saying there was evidence against Alan Weisselberg because he got all these tangible benefits in whatever this illegal arrangement might have been. There was evidence against the company, I guess, because of its books. But is Trump off the hook in that case because of lack of physical evidence? Well, it certainly seems like Trump is off the hook in that particular case. And I have to say, I, I, I'm critical. He's, he's my friend, but I can criticize my friends. I'm critical of the way the DA's office handled that particular case. Um, and this actually plays into some of the themes 
of my books. In this case, by the way, I should say predates Alvin Bragg. It goes back to Cy Vance, who was the prior DA, who I'm very critical of in the book for several different reasons. What the DA's office did is they charged two people or one person and one entity. They charged Alan Weisselberg, who was the CFO with this tax fraud scheme, and they charged the Trump organization. But when you charge a corporation like that with a crime, it really is fairly meaningless. It's just on paper. All that you can get out of that is monetary fines. They clearly, to me, were trying to flip Alan Weisselberg, which is the right move. As a prosecutor, he's exactly the guy you would want to flip. It did not work. However, they were not able to flip him. And as a result, they just didn't have enough evidence, I think is what the DA Alvin Bragg is saying there, to charge Donald Trump. Now, what I object to is that they let Weisselberg kind of cooperate. They let him cooperate against the, the corporation, which, as I said before, doesn't really mean that much, but not any individual. And I think if you look at the evidence against Trump, you know, he benefited so much from his position of power there. He was able to insulate himself. And by the way, he's not the first CEO to do this. I lay out other examples in the book. And he made essentially um, what what has sometimes been termed the idiot defense. Mm. It's a little bit of a harsh way to put it, but essentially, look, I sit in my suite. I'm the boss here. I don't micromanage. How am I to know the details of what my CFO is doing, uh, of what my accountants are doing? And by the way, it's not necessarily a false defense, but it is a luxury that only powerful people, people at the top of a hierarchy, have of making that particular argument. How about the Georgia case in which the Fulton County DA says a report is imminent? How do you see the status of that and Donald Trump? Yeah. So by the way, some people have asked me, what does imminent mean? Is that a legal term? No, it's just a normal <laughs> term. It just means soon, I guess. Um, I believe that all signs are pointing towards, all indicators are pointing towards an indictment of Donald Trump by the DA, Fonnie Willis. And I want to say, Brian, I am not one of these people who's always, oh, the walls are closing in. You know, I've been, I've taken a skeptical view of many of these prosecutions. But I think if you just read all the things that the DA has been saying publicly, she's frankly been been a bit boastful about her case and it seems clear to me that she intends to indict donald trump and imminently i guess but i do want to say this a lot of people are on you know indictment watch and very focused on indictment and they almost seem to be treating it people who want to see trump taken down they almost seem to be casting an indictment as the final victor right the, the finish line People, please understand, an indictment is the starting line. It is not the end. If there's an indictment, the DA in particular will face a very difficult, very uphill, very treacherous road to turn that indictment into a conviction. Now, there are legal reasons for this and there are practical reasons. But the first legal reason is there's a genuine legal question about whether it's constitutional for a local county level elected partisan DA to indict somebody for anything touching on a federal office, including the presidency. There will be a debate about whether Trump's conduct actually touched on the presidency or was sort of beyond his duties as president. But there's a reasonable chance, in my view, that the federal courts step in. Trump will run to the federal courts and say, no, this doesn't fly. And we never even get to a jury. If they do get to a jury, Brian, and, and I run through this in my book, um, it will be much easier said than done to get all 12, you need all 12 in order to convict, to come back and find Donald Trump guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, particularly as we get closer and closer to the 2024 election. These cases are so different. Hush money to Stormy Daniels, Trump organization tax fraud, tampering with the election in Georgia. Actually, what would, what would the Georgia charge be exactly? What's the crime yeah. there if he's indicted? 
So there are various Georgia state laws that relate to election interference. It's a crime in Georgia, as it is in every state, but it's phrased a little bit differently, to ask an election official or to pressure an election official to count votes that weren't cast, to not count votes that were cast, or to falsely certify the outcome of the election. And the key piece of evidence, the most famous piece of evidence, is Donald Trump's call to the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, where Trump infamously said, I would like you to find 11,780 votes, which is just one more than we need. We also could see a racketeering charge, a state level racketeering charge out of Georgia, which really just means this was an organized group of some nature and that they committed what we call a pattern of activity, meaning two or more crimes. Um, so that would be the likely charge in Georgia. Really, the, the, the way to put it in, in two words is election interference. All right. Let me get your thoughts on the criminal charges being brought against the five Memphis police officers in the death of Tyree Nichols. And I want to play a very short clip to get this going um, from your network. This is CNN's Dana Bash on State of the Union on Sunday morning asking a question of the attorney for the family, Benjamin Crump. Are you confident that all of these officers will be convicted of murder? I believe they all will be convicted of crimes. Whether all of them are going to be convicted with murder, we have to continue to dissect this video. So, Ellie, I was watching Sunday morning. I saw that live, and I really perked up at that answer. Ben Crump not being confident that they're all going to be convicted of murder, even though charged with murder. And I see that you on CNN <laughs> have called the second-degree murder charge an aggressive charge. So what does yep. that mean? Uh, I think Ben Crump and I are on the same page here. And, and I think it's remarkable that Ben Crump uh, uh, sort of made that. I think it's candid. I give him quite a bit of credit. Here's my view on these charges. I think these charges were aggressive, as I said on, on air at CNN. I do think, as I also said on air, they are within the range of broad discretion that prosecutors have. In other words, I don't think prosecutors have overstepped or overcharged here. But I think if if you think of the reasonable range of charges here, I think these are at the very high end of that reasonable range. Here's why it's not going to necessarily be easy. In order to prove a second degree murder in Tennessee, the prosecutors have to prove a knowing killing. You have to prove that the people here knew to a reasonable certainty that death would result from what they did. Now, I I understand the argument for that. When you punch a person, cold cock a person five times in a row and hit him with a baton in the head and his arms are pinned behind his back, you should know with a reasonable certainty you, you could kill that person. Um, I think that's the argument. One thing that I think is really important here, though, is what did each of the individual officers do? Because there is not going to be a verdict in this case. There's going to be 35 verdicts in this case. We have five people charged, seven charges each. Juries have to come back with a separate and specific verdict on each of those 35 counts. And so we may end up with a situation, if you remember, if you think back to the George Floyd killing, different officers did different things. Derek Chauvin, of course, infamously did the worst and kneeled on George Floyd's neck. Others held him down and, and, and they were all convicted of different outcomes in different in different scenarios. So I think we could see that scenario here. One really interesting issue to watch, Brian, that, that I think people uh, need to pay attention to, how will this case be what we call severed? Meaning, how is the judge going to divide these five defendants up for trial? Because as a prosecutor, I want them all together. I want one trial. I want to show the jury and say, these five, they work together. They beat Mr. Nichols literally to death. They're all responsible. If I'm the defendant, I want my own trial, especially if I'm one of the maybe less culpable defendants who maybe didn't strike as many blows, not to say he's not culpable, 
but comparatively, I want my own trial. And I want to say the things that these other guys did is are horrible, but you have to judge my client based on his own specific actions. We've been talking a lot on the show the last few days about body cameras and their yep. usefulness in police reform and preventing things like this. Does the fact that one or more had body cameras on um, help anyone's defense or help the prosecution? It's really interesting because body cameras are, are a relatively new feature, relatively new technology. When I moved over to the New Jersey Attorney General's office in 2012, um, we took a survey. There's 500 something police departments in the state of New Jersey because we have so many small towns. And only I think it was eight of them, like one percent were using body cameras. And so one of the things I was involved in for years was this push to to basically compel police departments to use them. And now everyone uses them. Now, people say correctly, body cameras don't solve everything. They don't show us everything. I think we saw a good example of that. I mean, the poll cam footage that the high in the sky footage gives us a much clearer angle of what's happening than the body camera footage, which is sort of hectic and the cameras being jostled around. That said, meaning there just happened footage, to be there just happened to be a surveillance camera that caught the worst of this on tape. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not and, their and, body cameras. Right. And and body cameras, though, they're not perfect. They're not going to necessarily give you the best view. But boy, if given the choice between body cameras or nothing or, or you know, just having a pole cam and nothing else, I'd rather have the body cam footage. It can't hurt. Right. How could it hurt to have more objective information? And by the way, I will say candidly, when we were putting this push on for body cameras, we got some resistance from the police, from the police unions. And what I always used to tell them is body cameras will protect good cops. Because if, and this happens sometimes, not often, but sometimes, if you are accused of wrongdoing and you didn't do anything wrong, play the body cam footage. We actually had a few specific cases in New Jersey where that happened. Mm -hmm. So body cameras, I, I am happy to say, I'm pleased to say, have now become an accepted part of just the police uniform. And, and it's not perfect. They don't solve everything, but, but they're a step in the right direction. I want to get to two other points here before you go. One, do you have a criminal take on what might have been purposeful misdirection on their part, speaking to the audio of their body cameras, or at okay. least contradictory words and actions in the heat of the beating. The New York Times notes in, in a very detailed article that they repeatedly told Nichols to get on the ground when he was on the ground and repeatedly said to show his hands when they had control of his hands. Is yeah. that covered in any of the charges? I don't think that that is a freestanding crime. I don't think there's a, a crime involved with calling out commands that are inconsistent with reality, even if you're doing it on purpose. But I do think that's a powerful argument for the prosecutors that these guys knew they were doing wrong and then some. And that's why you hear them barking out these ridiculous commands that are that are contravened by what's actually happening. They're trying to lay down a defense for themselves. Why would you say to a person whose hands you have Give me your hands. At one point, they say he reached for my gun. Now, they may maintain um, we don't have definitive proof that that's not the case. But I think that that could be some powerful evidence for the prosecutor. They're saying, don't resist, don't resist. Not only is he not resisting, he's trying to calm them down. If you look at the initial interaction, uh, Mr. Nichols is saying things like, guys, you're, you're, OK, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to comply here and you're going overboard. Um, and I think that could be important evidence for the prosecutor. It's not a crime in and of itself to lay down that sort of uh, you know, that false exculpatory, right. the crime as would, we call the it, crime would but it could be help. Potentially, if they were saying something, so a witness who is walking by seeing a beating might have heard, show us your hands or get on the ground and thinking, oh, that guy's resisting when he wasn't resisting. 
Yeah, I'm not sure. Again, I think that would be tough to prove as a freestanding crime. You'd have to get too deep inside their heads. But I do think it's fair game for an argument as to their consciousness of guilt. And last thing, they were charged with something called official oppression. Now, the whole structure of the United States criminal justice and economic system could be taken to court for that, I imagine. But that's another show. Do you know what criminal oppression is under Tennessee law? I do. I do. It's one of these strange, maybe archaically named statutes. Um, Essentially, it means an, an official omission, a failure to do a job that you owe. And this is a really interesting development in the law. One of the theories here in that in that particular charge is that the police officers a failed to intervene to, to stop their colleagues from uh, the brutal beating they were given and b um, failed to render medical aid and this is fairly novel and really the first time we saw it on the federal level was in the George Floyd case where several of the officers not Derek Chauvin but the others were charged on exactly that basis and it was a novel charge the jury convicted on it. Um, It will go through the full appellate courts, but I think it will stand up. And now we're seeing it's a different jurisdiction, but we're seeing states apply this as well. And I think if this theory of charging sticks, that could really change the way that police officers do their job. So that's an example of where the law and developments in the law can actually impact the way things work in the real world. And in your book, Untouchable, How the Rich and Powerful Get Away With It, do you yep. deal with how police get away with it? They're not rich, usually, but they are powerful as not only armed agents of the state, they are also politically powerful. And police violence rarely gets prosecuted or the officers convicted when it does. We reportedly have seen again in this case that the first official reports from the department were substantially false compared yep. to what the videos then revealed. Do you deal with how police get away with it? So no, I, d- I don't deal with police specifically in the book. It's actually, maybe maybe that'll be my next book, Brian. But um, you're right, uh, definitely not rich, but absolutely powerful. And there have been books about sort of why it's particularly difficult to go after cops. But one thing that I do note that that's, I guess, related to that is how the law has evolved over recent years. And by the way, this is cross-ideological. Um, unanimous Supreme Courts on several occasions have really narrowed and basically gutted the laws that can be used to go after or public officials of all stripes, whether they're police officers or uh, members of Congress or members of state assemblies. Um, And I have a chapter on that, how for all the dissension in the Supreme Court, the one issue, or not the one issue, but one of the rare issues where you will see Justices Sotomayor and Kagan on the exact same page as Justices uh, Alito and Thomas is in slowly but surely narrowing the scope of public corruption laws. And at the end of that chapter, I quote a friend of mine who was a longtime corruption prosecutor. And he said, basically, at this point, it's all but impossible for us to indict anyone for public corruption unless we have yeah. videotape of him handing an envelope to the guy marked, you know, cash for bribes. Yeah, um, unbelievable. And so there's been a real and, change in the law. And such an interesting part of your book. And we've seen it in New York cases where politicians charged with corruption have gotten off uh, based on that Virginia ruling primarily. That's um, exactly what I'm talking about. Yep. 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 That narrowed uh, what um, constitutes public corruption uh, under yes. law. So we, we, we leave it there with Ellie Honig, CNN legal analyst, former federal prosecutor, and the author now of Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. Ellie, thanks as always. Thanks so much, Brian. Always a pleasure.
Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.